You're listening to House on Fire, a youth-focused podcast that is going to wake up every single listener to embrace urgency and agency in this climate crisis. The wheels of industry are turning. Methane has a lifetime of maybe a decade in the atmosphere. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. In the United States, scientists found that streets in poor areas we're up to 3 to 10 degrees Celsius hotter. Of course, we can still turn this around. It is entirely possible. I am Caroline Lewis, the co-host for season two of House on Fire. And with me today is my colleague, Katrina. Take it away. Welcome back to House on Fire, a youth-led climate podcast that aims to get you to wake up. One of the reasons I got into the climate movement was because all of the many solutions that are already present. All we need is action. And my hope is that this podcast will get you to do that. My name is Katrina Irwin. I'm a recent college graduate and an associate program manager at the Clio Institute. I am on a mission to give you all the youth perspective of the climate movement and bring on many other youth climate hosts to help guide me in this effort. Our season one hosts, JP and Gabby, are off to college now doing great things. We hope to welcome back both of them at some point during season two. We thank you, JP. We thank you, Gabby, for your phenomenal work in season one. You're listening to House on Fire. Welcome, everyone. Today, I am so delighted to invite Catherine Hayhoe, the scholar on climate action and climate science, who is now working in the field of policy as a professor and a teacher. One of my personal heroes and someone, Dr. Hayhoe, if you all don't know Dr. Hayhoe, you will get to know her pretty quickly, who not only gets the crisis, but has a twinkle in her eye when she talks about the solutions and the way we're going to confront this existential threat. Catherine Hayhoe, you are a gift to all of us, and we are so happy to have you. My co-host today, Katrina, is going to just tell everybody a little bit about your highlights. Dr. Hayhoe is a remarkable communicator who has received the American Geophysical Union's Climate Communication Prize, the Stephen Schneider Climate Communication Award, and has been named to a number of lists, including Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People, Foreign Policy 100 Leading Thinkers, and Fortune Magazine's World Greatest Leaders. She is also an evangelical Christian and conflicts with her climate-denying family member at many family gatherings. Please join us in and welcoming Dr. Hayhoe. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Dr. Hayhoe, you're widow, so welcome. Can you please just tell us the magic? What is it that allows you to create the sense of urgency yet maintain the optimism in all your communication? Well, here is the secret. And I'm telling you because I want everybody to know this. If we connect what we know to why we care, if we connect our heads to our hearts, if we look at who we already are, where we live, what we love, who we love, we might be someone who lives in Florida or we might live in Chicago. We might be somebody who loves fishing or loves playing with our kids at the playground. We might be someone who's a person of faith or a member of the Rotary Club or a member of the military. Whoever we are, we are already the perfect person to care about climate change because climate change is affecting people, places, and things that we love. Mm -hmm. So connecting our head to our hearts and then 
connecting our hearts to our hands. Mm -hmm. What can we do to make a difference? Where we find our hope is through action and not just individual action, but when we connect with other people in our place of work or our neighborhood or our university or our school or our church or wherever it is that we live or we work or we play, whatever organization we're part of, using our voice to talk about why we care, what we together can do to make a difference and advocating for that change and actually seeing it happen that's what gives us the hope we need to keep going. And, and that really is something that we're all learning from people like you. Talk about the issue. Make sure people understand that there's a role for them to play if they can connect their heads, their hearts, and their hands, right? Exactly. <laughs> every single one of us has that. And so every single one of us has a role to play. Exactly. Now, I, I know... You follow the politics, and I know that you have somehow emerged as a professor of political science. I think that's kind of magical. So in terms of policy, what about this Build Back Better plan? Do you have hope for it? The climate segment sections of that plan just gave me so much optimism. Mm-hmm. So I am an atmospheric scientist, so I come from an earth science background, but the reason why I'm now in a political science department is because I realized that the biggest barriers to action aren't the fact that we need to know more science. We've known that climate is changing and humans are responsible and the impacts are serious for decades. In fact, scientists first warned a U.S. president of the risks in 1965. What's holding us back is how we as humans interact with this information, how we assess risk, and what types of solutions we can implement at every scale from our individual actions to the place that we work, to our city, to our state, to the national and even the international scale. So there's this new piece of legislation, the Build Back Better bill, mm -hmm. that is all about investing in our infrastructure, which is decaying, investing in our economy, which is hurting because of COVID, and investing in climate solutions. And it is the biggest and most important piece of climate legislation that the United States has considered in 10 years. It is very important. And it is so encouraging to see people realize that climate change is not a standalone issue. The only reason we care about climate change is because it affects the economy, it affects mm -hmm. our infrastructure, it affects our supply chains, it affects businesses, it affects our health, it affects our cities, it affects everything we already care about. But here's the thing. Also, one bill is not the be-all and end-all. It's not like it's a magic fix where, you know, if this the one bill is passed, everything's going to be good. And if the bill isn't passed, we're going to hell in a handbasket. We need action at every level. We need companies and cities, we need schools, we need tribal nations, we need churches, we need families, we need everybody acting at every level because together we truly can fix it. So Dr. Hayhill, we get it. We get that we are encouraged to have deep conversations with everyone so they see themselves and their lens is part of the discussion and the solution to the climate crisis. Let's talk a little bit about communication, Katrina. Yeah, so in the introduction, I mentioned climate-denying family members because that is something both Caroline and I can relate to on a personal level. And it really is so hard to be passionate about something and have your family truly believe that what you're working on is just some conspiracy. We just came back from the holiday season, and let me tell you, my family literally went out of their way to start arguments about climate change. How was your experience mm. this year? Well, here's the thing. About 7% of people in the United States 
are what I would call dismissive. And dismissive means that they will dismiss any information or evidence that counters what they believe to be true. And sadly, this is just as true on COVID and vaccines and masks mm-hmm. as it is on climate change. People who are dismissive, they'll dismiss 150 years of science. They'll dismiss every scientific expert in the world. They'll just dismiss millions of scientific studies. In fact, my personal definition of a dismissive is if an angel from God with brand new tablets of stone <laughs> appeared before them saying, global warming is real and go get vaccinated now, they would, they would still dismiss that. So who are we to think we can change their minds? But here's the thing. Most of us, over 90% of us, are not dismissive. So with people who are not dismissive, how can we have positive, constructive conversations? As I talk about my book, Saving Us, it's not about starting with what we disagree on. We have to start with something that we agree with them on. Mm -hmm. It might be that we both really like beer, or we both live in Florida, or we're both, you know, we both dive, or we both fish, or we both have military experience, or we both have kids and we're both parents. Begin with something that we have in common. Connect the dots to how climate change is affecting what we both care about today both of us already, and then bring in a positive, constructive solution that might surprise them. Like, did you know what, you know, a big company like Walmart is doing? Or did you know what the city we live in is doing? Or did you know what the military is doing? Or, you know, if they're a person of faith, did you know what the Pope is saying about this? Or what, you know, this church is doing about this? Bring in a really positive, surprising, constructive solution Mm -hmm. um, by an organization or people that they would agree with. And you'd be surprised how well those conversations go. Mm -hmm. But with a dismissive, the best thing we can do, as I do with my own uncle, is say, I love you, but you're wrong. (laughs) Now let's talk about something else. Because with a dismissive, it honestly takes a miracle to change their mind. So don't spend your time trying to argue with the dismissive. It's like playing the whack-a-mole game at the fair. As soon as you whack one, you know, no, it's not the sun, up will pop another mole. It's a natural cycle. Don't go down that whole rabbit trail with them. Instead, just saying, I love you, but you're wrong. Let's talk about something else. And with everybody else, start with something that you already agree with them on, connect the dots to climate change, and tell them about something that's a really cool solution that they could get pretty excited about. Yeah, You'll be surprised how well those go. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's really funny that you mentioned that just saying, like, I love you, but I'm not going to talk about this because during Christmas, my family tried to argue with me and I literally just saw red and I turned around and I said, I'm not going to argue with you right now because I know there was like no point in it. They were just trying to aggravate me. And like when I tried talking to my aunt once about climate change, she's a denier. I love you, Aunt Kathy. She turns things around and she claims, well, Al Gore told us we only had 10 years left and we're still here. It's so funny because I wrote the script before Christmas and it was like mm. I predicted it. She said that mm. again during Christmas time. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. So, what should we say to our climate denying family members that kind of twist arguments with misinformation? And how can we accurately communicate the timeline and urgency to act now? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, there's no new argument under the sun. And in fact, there's a really cool website called skepticalscience.com. Love it. That lists, yes, it lists almost 200 common arguments in order of frequency. And it gives short and longer answers to all those arguments, like Al Gore said X, or it's just a volcanic eruption, or it's too expensive to fix. So all those answers are there. But let me tell you about a conversation I had with someone who is dismissive. They came up to me and they said, it's just the sun. So here's what I did. I said, no, it's not. And then I I just added one sentence. I said, no, it's not. And 
If the sun was controlling climate right now, we'd be getting cooler, not warmer. But I didn't stop there. I immediately pivoted to what? To solutions. And I said, we were in Texas at the time. I said, did you know that we got 23% of our energy from wind energy last year in Texas? Mm-hmm. And they looked at me and they said, well, it's just a natural cycle. And I said, no, it's not. According to natural cycles, we should be cooling. And did you know that per megawatt of installed new electricity, we have eight times more local jobs in Texas than if you install natural gas or nuclear? And they said, and then they said, well, you know, those scientists are just making it up. And I said, <laughs> no, they're, no, they're not. And then I said, did you know that, and I forget the next statistic I had, but I had some other, you know, oh, did you know that we have the biggest army base in the U.S. is in Texas, and they're powered 43% by clean energy, and they're saving taxpayers $150 million. So at that point, he stopped, and he said, why are you saying these things to me? And I said, because these are the solutions to climate change. Do you have a problem with any of these? Mm-hmm. And he said, no. And I said, well, if we can agree on the solutions, there we go. then... It doesn't matter what you think about the science. I love that. That is such a good argument. I'm going to start using that because (laughs) my aunt literally like she recycles. She likes to go hiking. She wants to get solar. Mm. So I'm going to start targeting Mm. her with that a lot more. Right. I think that's perfect. But, you know, Dr. Hayhoe, Catherine, um, I really feel like the energy you give out gives people hope. So I like to be under your spell. But I'm also extremely nervous about the climate justice aspect of climate change. The fact that Mm. the people least responsible for causing the problem that this planet is facing are the ones that are feeling and will be feeling the impacts the most. When when you said that there are only 7% that are truly dismissive, I agree. And there are about 50% that really are concerned or alarmed. And I wonder... When they ask you specifically, what can I do? Because if you look at the research from Yale and George Mason, they tell you Mm -hmm. that a lot of the most alarmed among us don't know what to do, that nobody has ever asked them to do something. So how do Mm -hmm. you deal with that? How do you direct people into action? Well, you are absolutely right. And I'm so glad you brought this up because often we assume that the biggest gap is between people who agree and people who don't agree with the science. People who say, yes, climate change is real or it isn't. But actually, that's not true. The biggest gap is between the 70% of people who are already worried about climate change in the United States and the tiny fraction of people who are actually activated, who are doing anything, who are having conversations, who are advocating for change. That's the biggest gap. And 50% of people, so 70% are worried 50% feel hopeless and helpless. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to start. And that is exactly why I wrote my book, Saving Us. Which I I love, by the way. (laughs) Everybody. Oh, thank you. I wrote it for every single person who is worried but doesn't know what to do. And in it, I show that the most important thing any one of us can do is to use our voices to advocate for change. And sometimes using our voice means taking personal actions, but then telling other people about it. Like how happy I am that I had an EV during the COVID pandemic, so I didn't have to go to the gas station very much. That was great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes it's it's at work, like saying, hey, our university has a national wind energy center, but we're not powered by wind energy. Why isn't our campus powered by wind energy? What could we do to make a difference? Sometimes it's in our neighborhood saying, hey, we don't have any charging stations for EVs. Is there any way we could get them and encourage people to use them? Using our voice is the most powerful thing we can do. And we can use our voice when we vote, 
We can use our voice when we advocate for people who are marginalized and vulnerable and disproportionately impacted by climate change. We can use our voice in how we spend our money and where we put our money. We can use our voice in so many ways. And our voices are the most powerful thing that have changed the world before and they can change the world again. Amen, sister. That is just brilliant. And and it's so true. Now, I want to ask you, honestly, do you feel that without major political and economic changes, we could really turn this ship around? Uh, no, I don't think that we can. But at the same time, you don't want to put the chicken before the egg. How do major economic and political changes happen? They happen when people, individual people, use their voices to advocate for that change. How does a bill ever begin? How does a company ever change its policy? How do the big financial giants you know, decide not to lend money to fossil fuel companies? It isn't usually because the president of a corporation or a country, you know, just sort of wakes up one morning and decides that this is the way the world has to change. No, it's usually because people whose names we don't even know, who aren't even recorded in history, it's because people use their voices to advocate for change wherever they are, whoever they are, whoever they're connected to. That is how these big changes begin. It's like knocking over the first domino. And then when all the dominoes go down, you get to that massive change that you need. But how do you begin? You begin by knocking over the first domino, which is by using our voice. You know, it's such a good point. And I remember when the Clio Institute is looking to add people to our advisory panel, our board, and some of the potential people we're looking at say things like, well, I just don't want this to become political. Our response tends to be, well, climate change is political. It's not partisan. So we will celebrate anybody and any party who is seeing solutions to the crisis we're facing. Would you agree with that? Oh, I could not agree more. A thermometer is not Democrat or Republican. It does not give us a different answer depending on how we vote. Uh, a hurricane doesn't knock on the door of your house and ask you who you voted for in the last election before it, it destroys your home. And solar energy benefits us all. It doesn't matter how we vote either. So of, I completely yeah. agree. Yes. We, well, one quick thing I want to share is a, kind of a funny little story. We induct people into the Clio Leadership Circle annually. And one year we inducted two mayors and then a couple frontline community members and, you know, a nice range of people. And a mayor who was not inducted was in the room and came up to me afterwards and said, well, why wasn't I inducted? And I said, but all due respect, mayor, what have you done? And he, and he said, well, we have a LEED certified green building. I said, who doesn't? Get back to yes. work. <laughs> Get back to work and we will definitely consider inducting you. So that's how we moved on from that one. Oh, that is so perfect. So you're offering people a chance for grace, so to speak, a chance for to, to do better. And you're recognizing them for it and you're communicating about it. And so that's perfect. You're showing people how who they already are is already the perfect person to care. And everybody, no matter who they are, they have something unique that they can bring to the table to contribute. Yes. Exactly. And talking about the chance to do better, have you seen the movie Don't Look Up? Oh, yes. <laughs> that movie just infuriated me because they spoke with the president so many times, giving her the chance to do better, and she kept not doing it. And the one thing that just drove me crazy about that entire movie is how real it really was that 
you know, the science yes. were there. People were ignoring the science. It was all about greed. And then at the end of the movie, I have to tell the people that are watching the podcast, I don't want to spoil it for you. So stop what you're doing and watch it and then come back to this part. The earth ends up exploding and all the rich people just leave and they're fine. And that's what's going to end up happening with the climate crisis. So in your opinion, do you believe Don't Look Up gave us the impetus for greater civic engagement on the science and policy for climate change? I think that Don't Look Up, which is a very popular streaming movie on Netflix that I highly recommend if you have not seen it yet, um, it is great because it is starting these conversations mm -hmm. that we need to be having. Um, it doesn't show us how we can fix it, but it shows us why climate change is so urgent and what happens when you ignore the scientist's warning. There's a, a famous meme that says, you know, all disaster movies begin with a scientist being ignored. <laughs> I, I love that one, yeah. I th yeah, I think Don't Look Up is exactly like that. But it reminded me of a few years ago, and I tell this story in my book, a few years ago, I actually had the opportunity to attend one of Stephen Hawking's very last talks he gave before he passed away. Oh, wow. And he was a strong advocate for climate action and for the urgency of the climate crisis in his later years. And so in his talk, he was talking about what a serious issue it is and how humanity must deal with it. But then he said something that just made my jaw drop. He said, because... If we don't fix climate change, we'll have to terraform Mars. And I thought to myself, oh. terraform Mars? There is no way that we're going to be able to terraform a whole other planet and transport large numbers of people, not just Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, but everybody else. There's no way we're going to be able to do that before climate change overwhelms our civilization. It's not about saving the planet. It's about our civilization. That is what is at risk. That's what's on the chopping block. And so... The next day, it was this was at a science festival. The next day, I was giving my presentation. And I was giving my presentation right after Lord Martin Rees, who is the Royal Astronomer of England, and who is also a colleague of Stephen Hawking. They're at the same college at Cambridge. So when we were backstage and they were color coding our laptops, because we actually had the exact same laptop, I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. And he is, you know, just as famous in astronomy as Martin Rees. I actually studied, um, or as, as Stephen Hawking, I studied his work as an undergraduate student in astronomy myself. So I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he said, oh, absolutely. So I said, do you agree with Hawking when he said that we would have to terraform Mars to escape climate change? <laughs> and he said, oh, no, he said, <laughs> Stephen and I are old friends, but I know that fixing climate change is a dawdle in the park compared to terraforming Mars. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a mic drop if I ever heard one. I love that. That is pretty great. Well, you know, I, I, I know we don't have endless amounts of time, but I do want you to know how we present your gift, Catherine Hayhoe. You are able to tell stories that allow people who are in the climate fight to look at the big picture and at the small details and to go in and out of that focus so that we're not so here and now that we don't get the big picture, but we're not only in the big picture that we don't act on details. And I think mm. that is your gift. And I want you to know you have helped me do that better. And I too have become who oh, I'm becoming a storyteller because of you. And your book really saving us, I hope will save us all. Would you please share any parting words you want with our audience? Oh, thank you so much. Well, what we need to know is this. Whoever you are, whatever you care about, whatever you're good at, wherever you live, 
you are already the perfect person to care about climate change and you already have something unique that you can contribute. We don't just need scientists, we need everybody. We need medical professionals, we need engineers, we need business people, we need entrepreneurs, we need activists, we need communicators, we need journalists, we need teachers, we need everybody. Climate action is not a giant boulder sitting at the bottom of an impossibly steep cliff with only a few hands on it, like Greta Thunberg's and Sir David Attenborough and mine. No, <laughs> that, that giant boulder, when we start looking around at what cities are doing, what states are doing, what companies are doing, what churches are doing, what schools are doing, what kids are doing, that giant boulder, we realize, is already at the top of the hill. It is already rolling down the hill in the right direction. It already has millions of hands on it. And when you add yours, and when you include, when you use your voice to encourage others to add theirs, it gets going just that little bit faster. Every single one of us has a role to play and together we truly can save ourselves. Oh, that's a beautiful way for us to end today's show. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayhill. You are a gift and we appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to talk with you both. All right then. House on Fire is powered by the Clio Institute and could not exist without the help of the Lynn and Lewis Wilson II Family Foundation. Thank you for your support. Here at the Clio Institute, we believe that the best way to get people into the climate movement is through education. And one of the best ways to do that is by sharing House on Fire with your friends and family. So don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. And House on Fire can be found on all channels where podcasts are available. 